everyone and welcome to A Thriving Future with me, Hannah Temple. It has been a little while since the last episode due to some extremely busy months for me, but I am really excited to be back today with a ludicrously rich episode. One of the things people often associate with more regenerative organisations are different, more dispersed structures of decision-making and power distribution. But this area can often be murky and confusing with some pretty complicated theories and models on one side and a whole load of myths on the other. Luckily for us, my guest today has done a lot of the thinking and work on this for us to learn from. Today, I'm talking with Kate Simpson, who is director of the Systemcraft Institute at Wasifiri and their former managing director. Kate was heavily involved in helping this organisation to implement some really interesting, adaptive, self-managing practices. And from that experience, she offers us in this conversation a huge set of really practical tools and guidance for bringing this into our own organisations. From precedents and domains to hierarchies and power, this is a self-managing geek out that I thoroughly enjoyed. Please make sure that you have your pen and some paper ready because this discussion is absolutely chock full of golden guidance. Let's get started. Okay, hello, hello. Hi, Kate. Welcome to A Thriving Future. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm very good. And I'm really looking forward to this as well. Chance to geek out with you about uh, self-managed organisations. <laughs> yeah, I've been um, kind of warming up to this geek out for a little bit, just kind of <laughs> getting my head into the self-organising game, having a bit of a think about it. Yeah, really excited. Um, would you mind just telling everyone whereabouts in the physical world you're you're joining from today? Yeah, I am sat in Pendle in the Lake District and it's sunny and I can see out of my window and I can see like lambs gambling around in the field. It, it's, it's all a bit idyllic here today. Bluebells yeah. are out. So yeah, I'm talking to you from there, from the Lake District in the north of England, for those that maybe are less familiar with British geography. Gorgeous. Yeah, the Lake District is a, an outrageously beautiful part of the country. You're, you've wangled it very nicely to base yourself there. Yeah, I have. <laughs> and I, I enjoy it all the time. I was out for, I had a call this morning um, and I went for a walk with the person I was talking to, walked up onto the top of the fell, sent them a picture in the middle of our call. Very nice. I mean, it does rain here a lot before I sound too smug. Those lakes have got to come from somewhere. That is true. <laughs> Wondrous. Well, thank you so much for joining. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about West Fury. Um, You and I have known each other for a little while, but even I feel like, you know, I know quite a bit about West Fury and some of the awesome things that you do, but it's so great just to hear you tell its story sort of from the beginning and from your perspective. Can you introduce us to West Fury? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, I think the best way to do that, or the like, way I like to do it best, is just to give you a sense of our, our origin story and where we where we come from. So um, we set up Wasafiri about, I'd say, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And um, at the time, I was working in, in sort of leadership and organisational development, doing a lot of work in the corporate space. And some of my good friends and colleagues were working more in the international development space. And we were realizing there was a whole set of 
um, all sorts of challenges, organizational challenges and social challenges and uh, sustainability challenges that were being dealt with in very technical ways. Yeah, as if these solutions were technical. And we were realizing that they were much more about how people came together to, to solve the challenges that they, that they faced. And so we set up Wessa Theory to, um, to pioneer new approaches to tackling really complex problems um, which needed systemic level change. And at the time, we didn't really have that language. But what that looked like in practice at the time is we, you know, we set, set up very much grow out of East Africa. So our, our headquarters is now in Nairobi, Kenya. And historically, we've done a lot of work around tackling violent extremism. So what are what are the things that make some people vulnerable to radicalization and other people not vulnerable to radicalization? And a lot of work around food systems as well. And how do we build healthier, more nutritious um, and more equitable food systems and also in the climate and nature space? So we were, you know, most of our work to date has been in kind of East Africa um, and and as we were sort of doing this work, we were finding, we found, started to find this language of complexity and systems change. And um, and in 2017, um, we asked ourselves the question, 2017, 2018, we asked ourselves this question about, well, what have we learned about how you make change happen in these really complex environments? And out of that, we reverse engineered what, what we call system craft, which is a, as an approach, a methodology for working with complex problems. And so some of our work now is to say, well, there's way too much work in the world for us to do. Um, but people are really, leaders, organizations are really needing new approaches, new ways to think about um, complex problems that need systemic change. And so if we can put our methodology, we can put system craft into their hands, then they can go out and make change um, in the world. And that's a way of us sort of, you know, expanding our impact. So I now run that side of the organization, which is, we call the System Craft Institute, which is about helping other people to be able to better tackle um, system change. And maybe it's worth saying um, that, you know, Wasafiri is a Swahili word. I'm sure some people have caught that. Uh, that means travelers. And when we, when we set up Wasafiri, when we didn't have this geeky language of systems change, um, we saw ourselves as, yeah, we were using the line from the Machado poet poem, um, that traveller, there is no path, we make the path by walking. So very much this idea that the way to solve some of these existential and sustainability challenges that we face is to bring together the people who live with those challenges um, to figure things out together and to create new solutions that we, we have never seen before. So that's a bit about us. And if you want some numbers, we're about 22 of us now, most most people based out of um, Nairobi in Kenya and... Um, a, a few of us here in the UK, we've got an office here in the UK and an outpost in the USA as well. And our work covers mostly Europe and um, Europe and Africa with a few few global pieces in there as well. Oh, it's so good to get the, the story. In terms of like the practicalities of Wasafiri, are you like a non-profit? Are you a, what's the structure of what you operate in? Yeah, so so we're a, we're a business, we're a small business. Um, you know, we uh, we have to fund ourselves, so we have to, you know, make 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 that make the ends meet. We're not grant funded, um, or uh, you know, fundraise for. It's a very long answer to that question. Yeah, we're a small business. Perfect. That's the um, short answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was um, a few things that really struck me as you were telling the story. One was the kind of real appetite right from the beginning to lean into the complexity of the world around us, the complexity of the challenges that we face, that that was that kind of an appetite right from the beginning to lean into that. And so I'm a little kind of curious about where you think that came from. And 
the other thing that really struck me was something that um, came up. I was in a conversation just last week with a guy called John Alexander, who um, you were nodding. Yeah, who New Citizenship Project and wrote Citizens. Um, and he was talking about this idea of spreading rather than scaling. And it's I think it's a really interesting thing because one of the questions that I hold kind of constantly in my kind of exploration of regenerative organizations is, you know, like, well, can you be really big and really regenerative at the same time? Is bigness and regenerativeness, how well do they fit together? And I think this concept of spreading in the way that a mycelium network would spread or in the way in which kind of a whole host of different things in nature kind of spread rather than scaling is kind of a different concept, a different way of thinking about it. And the way you described kind of all your kind of helping leaders in different sectors to then take some of the things you've learned and for those ideas to spread, that just, it just really resonated with that kind of phrasing that I came across last week. So yeah, just a couple of things to... <laughs> I really like that. I haven't had that language, but I like that. And you know, when we're when we with the system craft institute so i said we asked ourselves this question what have we learned about how you make change happen and kind of reverse it reverse engineered system craft from our practice and other people's and then next, last year we asked ourselves the question so how do we 100x our impact um and i particularly got really all of us got you know i think the root to that is decoupling the growth of the organization from our impact so you know how to have more impact without becoming a bigger organization because that just seems such a narrow way to think about think about things and 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 there's probably a personality in there you know i love the agility and the pioneeringness of a smaller organization and the space for growth and newness that comes when you're a bit smaller and when you're very big it, it, i think it's harder to do that so there's probably a bit of me in there but that's very much the idea with the system craft stuff is that we can put it in the hands of people doing work in all sorts of systems and in all sorts of problems that we know nothing about. And if we can help them to make more change happen, that's a sort of exponential level of impact. Um, so I do say with system crafting, you know, we, we encourage people to take it and use it and tell us the stories of how they've used it. But we don't control it. We don't IP it. You know, we want people to take it and add to it and grow it and adapt it because it, it's a dynamic thing that has to keep learning as it encounters the world. So, um, so yeah, I think I'm going to borrow that language from, from John of spreading, not scaling. Yeah, I think it was really powerful. And it's really, you know, we've kind of planned to have this conversation today around a lot of the kind of aspects of, well, in my, the framework that I use to talk about the different aspects of what it means to be a regenerative organization, I use this metaphor of a tree and, kind of your soil is your grounding, your kind of origin story, your core organizing um, principles, your vision, your legal financial structure, that kind of stuff. Your roots are your network, the community, the people within your network. Your trunk is your kind of internal processes. So I think a lot of what we were, what we touch on later will kind of fall into trunk stuff. But then you come to the fruits, flowers and foliage, which is kind of everything you put out in the world. And I think one of the core principles of a kind of a really regenerative approach to what you put out in the world is, is a generosity to it. And kind of what you're talking about, about sharing the 
the wisdom that you've managed to gather, putting that out in the world, recognizing that actually if your vision is to see whatever it might be, a more thriving world from XYZ perspective, um, that that giving out is, is a key part and that we, you know, we're all, we'll be hindering our ability to see that reality achieved if we aren't able to integrate some degree of generosity with what we've, we've learned. Yeah, I, I really like a lot of that. And I would also say, you know, you asked me um, structurally, what are we? And I think this stuff really matters. And you have, you know, this has to be a coherence. Um, and, you know, structurally, we're, we're, we're a business and, that, you know, people quite rightly need to be paid every month. And we have cost, you know, so we, we have to, we have to be healthy as well. And, and some of that's our financial health. So um, for me, it's, and for me, this isn't an either or. So our driver isn't necessarily to be as big as we can and to capture as much market as we can. But what I find is that by showing up in this, yeah, what you call this generous way and saying, hey, we've got something of value. It's like a really quick way to find opportunities, because if people value you, they want they want to team up with you. They want to work with you. And we often end up working with people that you might think of as more obviously um, competitors. And they're not because we can bring what we bring to the table and they bring what they do. And so, yes, it's not probably if you're just after a conventional scale, you probably do want to protect and, and control more. That's just that's just not I just don't I don't think you can scale your impact if you're trying to. Well, who knows? But I think our route to scaling our impact is not to first and foremost scale our organization. And I'd also say that for us, you know, it, it it's financially helpful as well you know people want to partner with us because we show up in a bit of a different way and you know it's easier to partner with somebody who's saying well we do this and you do that better than us rather than someone who's trying to sort of capture space as much so I guess it is viewing it as a as an ecosystem and us as an ecosystem and trying to um, find our place in that ecosystem and you know if and the whole ecosystem is healthier isn't it at times so um, so yeah so I just sort of think that that's not that generosity isn't in tension with being economically viable either or you know you know totally open it works well for us as a sort of way of operating in a market as well yeah exactly I think um the the kind of fifth element to the tree is the is the materials is the is the nutrients that are flowing through the organization and and money is clearly one of those crucial nutrients that has to flow through and and so these and like you say but there can be a, a perception from our kind of the model that we've often inherited that that these things are intention, that, oh, if I give away that idea, I'm, you know, I'll be losing out on on the money that that I'm owed mm. and this kind of thing. And, you know, and and obviously we have to be sensible and hold those things in in balance. But so often, as you say, actually, that degree of the kind of the giving so often that then creates a big cycle that then comes back. And we obviously have to keep an eye on the, on the nutrient cycle and make sure that we have enough of that, but they aren't necessarily in tension with one another. No. And I also think it, uh, you, you've, if you think about being in a sort of knowledge workers, knowledge economy, you know, the generation of ideas is, is so fast. And if you're trying for me anyway, if we're trying to sort of capture and codify and gatekeep people's access to ideas, then you, you, you sort of end up doubling down on, you know, the nature of ideas is they move fast and you have to build on them and you have to keep iterating them. And you, it's really hard to do that if you're one, trying to commodify them all the time and two, trying to sort of preserve 
and preserve your you know so some of it is like um for me it keeps it keeps me working at gen at generating you're building on and evolving because that's actually where the value lies not in the ideas i had three years ago or the you know the, the ideas we had three years ago in fact system craft is now in its second iteration we've changed it you know we learn a load of stuff by people using it and coming back and saying this doesn't quite work or this would be better or this is missing and we've evolved it um, and i imagine we will evolve it again in another three or four years with the things that we're learning um so yeah that's almost like mm. part of that regeneration to stop us trying to bank on things that are by their nature uh, you know, atrophying and also the final thing I say is also think that in this knowledge space you know there's no shortage of ideas and models and frameworks out there and what what really adds value is curation of those so people tend to you know they get access to system craft and think oh and they think it's useful and they take something and they do stuff stuff with it or they think oh this these you know these people are producing something useful I, I could do with some of their help or how can we help you know them adapt their ideas or whatever um so it yeah it as you say it, it's healthy for us as well it's not intention yeah. to our market um i think yeah. it helps us to keep thriving and growing and keep pace and you know keep having new ideas and people then share their ideas with us because it, it's open and then something new grows so yeah i i would you know the way i like to operate in the world but it also makes business sense as well for us Exactly. There's a, a book called um, Share Your Work by a guy called Austin Cleone, which is, I don't know, for me, it, was, it really did it emphasise so much of what you just said so, so powerfully that this idea of withholding being kind of a, a preservation is actually like you're committing yourself to stagnancy. You're, you're going to, you know, you're withholding your own growth um, with this idea of like holding on to things too tightly. It's not actually, it's often, it's so rarely actually in your, in your interest to do that. Yeah. But it can feel like it when you've invested quite a lot. Yeah. In yeah. Like, oh, I wanna, yeah. <laughs> Keep hold of this thing. Um, oh, well, this is great. We kind of had a little side tour into the fruit flowers yeah, foliage area. Yeah, that was, um, I don't know, there was just something in how you were describing it. It was like, oh, we can't, can't not touch on that. But what we had kind of signaled that we would really spend a bit of time on today was exploring this idea of kind of self-organizing, self-managing, because when people talk about life-centered organizations, regenerative organizations, whatever language they might choose to use, these these kind of ideas of practices are, are more and more kind of in the, the consciousness of, oh, this is maybe some things that are associated with this kind of form of, of organization or of practice. Um, and yeah, I would just love to hear, first of all, from you, like how does the idea of kind of self-organizing, self-management, how does that relate to an organization being more regenerative or more life-centered, whatever language you would choose. What is that all about? How are they related? Are they related for you? Well, you might have to bring in the regenerative language here because this is stuff I'm learning learning from you. And um, I, I, I broadly use the language of self-management, but I think it's really unhelpful. I'm just sort of been roaming around trying to find better language, I guess. But that might be the language people are most familiar with, the, the principles of self-management or pro progressive organisations. Um, the, the, the best language I've landed on for us is we talk about an, adap an adaptive organisation. So um, I'm about to not ask your question because your question was, how, how does organising like this relate to our work? Is that right? Well, I suppose I'm I'm interested in well, 
maybe a different way to ask it would be, you know, why were you interested in becoming or introducing more kind of self-organizing or adaptive practices? What are the benefits of doing that for you? Why were you drawn to that initially? Okay, so, you know, I, I think I said at the beginning, that we, you know, we said what's a very sort of 13 years ago. So you start an organization and there's a few of you around and you're building from the ground up. And and yet, you know, the way most organizations are structured is very, very similar. It's it's so much in the water that we swim in, the way an organization works, that it that I think most most organizations don't actually ask their question of like, well, how are we organizing ourselves internally? And I think probably because my background in organizations and leadership development, I just got really interested in that. And read a lot and was thinking a lot as I was kind of leading part of leading an organization that was growing of like like how do we how do we want to organize ourselves and how do we need to for the work that we're doing in the world and and this is one of the things that you know I think people go down the self-management or progressive organizations route sometimes for ideological reasons because they feel like it's the right thing to do which is um fine and sometimes for functional reasons and for 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 me yes it's a way I probably like to live and a way that people in the organization like to be so there's a degree of that preference but also for us it's really attached to our our function so the form we take the way we organize is really attached to the function the work we do in the world so you know when you set yourself up to bring people together to sort of you know with that whole not idea that we have to that the solutions we need will emerge, that we have to be adaptive to the world, that we have to be really contextual, um, that we have to work together to create things, then you kind of have to build your organization like that. There's also a practical thing that when you're running a small organization, you know, the value a small organization has is it, its agility, its ability to move fast. And I often think about, you know, when um, I think it's Schumacher who writes about entropy, you know, as organizations grow, they get to this point where they spend more and more time managing themselves and further and further from the work they do in the world. So I often try and think about Wasafiri and how we organize ourselves. Like we want the largest possible surface area in contact with the world that we work in. So nice. that's what I think about. How do we create the largest surface area? in contact with the world we work in so that you know i spend more time talking to people outside the organization than inside the organization we spend more time talking with our partners than ourselves that we spend more time doing our work than organizing ourselves internally i think the key to our function the way that our form there's probably a few key things the first is that we spend as much time out in the world not inside so that that surface area piece the second thing is that you know, when you're a small organization, your ability to make decisions quickly is really important. And we need to make lots of decisions really quickly. So I think one of the things that's a bit different is that everybody in our organization is a decision maker. And we, we have a way of structuring that. We talk about domains. But in your domain, you are the decision maker. And so I think we've got an organization where people are very, very used to making decisions. They make them all the time. They don't escalate them. They don't, you know, they're not collectively made, actually. Everybody in our organization is a decision maker. And that allows you to move with quite a lot of pace, but it allows you to move with quite a lot of context as well. Um, and then the, the third thing, I think if you're going to run like that, 
if you're going to sort of run with everyone being a decision maker and moving and having this high contact with the outside world, then, you know, so often the, we're judged, you know, the incentive is to judges, judge people by the, the outcome of their decisions. But actually, if you're going to work like this, you have to judge people by the quality of your decision making, not the outcome of the decision. And that to me feels like a sort of mindset shift. It's a different way of thinking about what does good look like? Because sometimes people make decisions and maybe if we'd all spent more time talking about it, we might have made a better decision. But more from the not, it's more important that a decision was made and that we moved. Or if you only judge people by the outcome of the decisions, then that inherently encourages very risk averse decision making and encourages us to make the same decision as we made in the past. So if you want an organization that's kind of contextual and and adaptive, then and you want people to make decisions, then you have to be able to say, well, did you make, you know, did you look at the we use precedents? Did you look at those? Did you kind of ask for a bit of input where you needed to? Did you make the best decision you could at the time? Then if you did, if your process was good, maybe the outcome will work out or maybe it won't. But it feels like a really key mindset shift is to say, how do we learn to make good quality decisions not decisions with you know outcomes that are deemed right or wrong so that feels like that I mean I think that is just like it's quite paradigm shifting as an idea I think as a like you say just imagining us all stopping measure trying to measure the impact the outcome which so often is completely out of our control right whether we're an individual an organization a country you know no matter what scale we're talking about often we just don't know exactly how things are going to go on because we're working in dynamics complex interconnected systems so by shifting into the well how did you make the decision how did you come to what let's focus on what actually we are doing let's think about assessing that and it just well it creates first of all for me personally like you can imagine a huge sense of lightness like oh okay I can you know, there isn't this expectation that we're all like looking into crystal balls and able to expect, oh, the pand- a pandemic was going to come. And so therefore this decision was a terrible one. You know, um, it, it just it gives us a freedom to to work with what we have to to kind of to. And, it, and as you say, kind of it feels an empowering thing that, OK, I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to make a decision because I'm it, I'm recognized and people around me recognize that I'm going to be I'm going to follow a certain set of processes and rules and I want to understand more about these these precedents that you mentioned in a second but there's this like freedom this empowerment to take some risks to try some things because we're focusing on the how rather than expecting that we will know the what of what happens afterwards yeah otherwise you can get things can work out and people made terrible decisions they just you know got a bit lucky or things you know people made really good well-intended actions and it didn't quite work out you didn't win that bid or something you know yeah so it's it's what are we holding people accountable for and we try and hold people accountable for the quality of the decision making not the outcome of the decision amazing so tell me more about how that actually works you know so you mentioned these precedents you mentioned domains that sounds to me like a kind of a holacracy possible framing could you tell me more about yeah how this works in in practice okay um so I'd love to, because I think that um, some of this self-managed, I understand that is not the most helpful language, 
it's very easy to talk about this stuff at a really high conceptual level and lots of people get excited about it and they go how do I do it in my organization and the this is all about like the practice yeah how do you do it because we our organizations are are so built to work in one way the sort of tailor-esque mm. scientific management top down and there's loads of stuff that's really reassuring about that you know people in leadership places feel in control and they feel like they hold people accountable and people further down an organization can feel you know safe and there's loads of stuff that works like that and we've all you know pretty much cross-culturally actually because again our organization is pretty culturally diverse you know we've all grown up in organizational and education systems that broadly are aligned with that so how you go from like this self-managed stuff sounds like a good idea to how do I do it in practice? Yeah, you know, for me, that's where the really interesting stuff is. So with that in mind, um, the metaphor I always go back to is I think if you watch a particularly a football game, and I don't mean like a premiership football game, I mean like watch a bunch of folks playing football in the park. And, you know, any of us could walk outside our house right now, meet a bunch of people we've never met before and we could play football with them. And when you watch that happen, you watch all these kind of people make um, autonomous decisions in the moment. Do I run forward? Do I kick the ball? Do I track this person? We, you know, you can watch Premier League football like that. But, you know, people are making all these autonomous decisions in the moment. Right? And in aggregate, it makes for a great game of football. So that for me is almost like the perfect self-managed system. And so what do you need to create that, you know, and the reasons people can do that is because um, football has a very clear set of simple rules. You can actually play a game of football with one rule, which is don't pick the ball up with your hands. Most games of football are played in the park, probably don't even have goals. You don't even need the same number of players. You know, when you actually look at it, you can play with only that one rule. So how do you create these really clear cross cutting always? And we a simple rule we call them simple rules in our organization so we have a set of simple rules we have more than one we have seven and they're the things that are like true all the time the principles you hold yourself to and they're very practical they're behavioral they're not values um because values are abstract they're not things you can see people do so there's a very specific process we have around creating simple rules we created them collectively we review them once a year um and they are yeah the, so they're the sort of highest level. But then you need something a bit more granular, a next level down, which we call precedents, which I mentioned. And these are like the best way we've learned to do this so far. And this creates the safety for people to make decisions, actually. Um, and a lot of people misunderstand. They think that self-managed organizations are just a bit of a free for all. Do whatever you like. But again, the, the reason people can play a game of football altogether is because, you know, we roughly know who's in goal or who's kind of looking after defence or who's attacking. And we might swap in a moment, but we broadly, you know, which bit, you know, where you're playing mm -hmm. on the pitch, mm -hmm. you know what you're responsible for. We, there's an alignment and a togetherness. And so we use these precedents to create that. And precedents, we write them up. And this sounds really weedy, but we use OneNote. So there's never version control. There's only right, one. Yeah. It's all online. Anyone can look at them. We have a directory of them. And precedents cover the things that we do a lot. So you don't make one for an exceptional circumstance. But the principle of them is that we do, they allow us not to have conversations about things. So we have a precedent about how we cost work. And if you're, you're working on a bid and you want to cost some work, so long as you work in the precedents, you can just crack on and do it. And we don't have to have loads of conversations about it. Um, now, 
sometimes you want to break a precedent. And we have a way of doing that, which is that you talk to the person who owns that precedent and you, you, no one can break a precedent on their own. Even the managing director can't break a precedent on their own. But sometimes you need to break them and you agree that with people. But the, the idea is so when we say, have you made a good decision? One of the things is, well, did you work to precedent? And if you did, then that's that's all right. Those are the, the tram lines we've agreed. Now, the trick with those is to keep having as few as you possibly can. Yeah. <laughs> and it's easy to just let those proliferate in an organization. That's probably one of the things um, I haven't quite worked out. My colleague described it. It's like having a bath plug, you know, bath. You put the plug in and you keep adding more and more water. We haven't quite worked out to take the plug out and get rid of some precedents. But yeah. we update them and I gem you know, we generally try not to create any more. We say, do we really need this one? Do we have something that already exists? But that's in another language is that institutional knowledge. But because they're written down and written down really simply, they become something, you know, you've done something in one setting and developed a precedent. I can then, you know, I don't know, I'm employing a new consultant. I'm yeah, pricing a bid. I'm um, I don't know what else we have them for everything. I'm booking some holiday, anything you can think of. And the joy of them is that they mean that we don't need a meeting. We don't need a conversation and we don't need sign off. Anything that needs sign off. I'm like, hmm. Let's avoid that. Can we have a precedent instead? So precedents are really important. And then I think the other thing that's really important is, well, there's two other things. I can talk about them if you want. One is that we, we have to all learn how to make a decision. What does good decision making mean? And it isn't always the same. You know, sometimes the, a good decision is one that's just made really efficiently and quickly. Sometimes a good decision is one that's quite inclusive and you know, it's about lots of voices. Sometimes it's about really deep thought. Like what makes a good decision is contextual. And so we spend a lot, you know, we talk about what is a good decision and have, you know, spend time on reflecting on that. So mm -hmm. we've got a language for that. And then the final thing I'd say that I think really significant is, you know, there's a there's a maybe an apparent paradox in self-managed organizations that they need really strong leadership and they need really strong leadership from senior people. They're not flat. And how you as a senior people person hold and wield power is really significant. And kind of thinking about that and being really intentional about that is a big part of it. And sometimes that's hard as well. So simple rules for us, simple rules, precedents, a culture that talks about decision making and then thinking about power is really important. Oh, I mean, amazing. Amazing. I have about 8,000 questions, so um, I'm just going to dive in. <laughs> um, okay, so these seven rules, can you give us examples of them? I can. Now, one of the things we've learned about the simple rules is they do not make sense to an external world. And okay. be okay <laughs> about that, because part of them is their rules, their language that work for us. And also mm -hmm. they have, um, yeah, so, it's, well, well, they sort of have a shadow side to them as well. And so if you try and make the language work for the external world, you end up in this sort of marketing word soup. So I'm happy to share them with you. It's not, they're not secretive, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah. But yeah, don't, I shouldn't expect to understand them necessarily. Or, or to think they said, um, and and possibly um, when you know I I was MD when we first developed them and I was I had probably was more comfortable with 
more internal language, they've probably softened up a bit. So I would say, um, so just to give you, we have seven, because you can't have more than seven, because human beings can't remember more than seven things. Right? So it's really important. <laughs> We're allowed five <laughs> plus or minus two. And that's hard. We have to get rid of some when we want new ones. So, yeah. So I'll give you a kind of example. So one of our ones is um, take responsibility for our financial health. Sounds pretty simple. Um, and it, yeah, understand and make decisions informed by our financial health. So that that then drives a set of behavior. People can only take responsibility for our financial health if they know what it is. So we're completely transparent about all our financial data. Yeah. All of it internally. Everyone can see all of it. And then I've had to learn that just sharing a massive spreadsheet is not the same as being transparent, <laughs> you know, because people can't consume it in that way. So you have to share it in a way that makes sense and it is consumable for people. And, you know, sometimes it feels a bit you're like, oh, no, I want to protect people. And maybe that, that data will make people anxious or nervous or maybe that will make them complacent. You, you sort of can generate a narrative. But that's the point. It's like, nah, everyone's an adult. And we share this data and we share it in a way people can make sense of it. Um, if that's your simple rule, you don't need an expenses policy. Yeah. So we don't have one. Yeah. Sometimes we have to work full disclosure. Sometimes clients require them. So we work with them on those. But for internally, are you taking care of our financial health? Great. You might have people that are too cautious. We need to invest a bit more. We need to spend a bit more or we need to spend less. But so so that's one might not mm. sound radical, but that's one we, we refer to a lot. We also one of the ones that <laughs> I like the most and maybe is, is we talk about serving the problem, not the client. And that doesn't mean that we don't serve the client, but that, you know, ultimately we're saying what's the problem in the world that we're trying to serve and what's how do we make choices that are in service of that and help and support our clients with that. And so, you know, when you're a small consultancy in a business, you know, most consultancies are very client centric. We're not, you know, if you put, if the moment you put something at the center, you decenter other things. And so I know it's a bit hard, but it doesn't mean we don't really value and want strong relationships with our clients and they're really important to us. They are. And, um, what does it mean to be problem centric and say, hey, how are we serving this problem together with the client? You know, how are we serving a problem together? Mm. And, you know, when we look at a bid, we say, well, what is the problem this is in service of? Is it a problem we think we can add value to? Is it a problem we believe in serving? So trying to be problem centric. And I think particularly when you're you are a business, but a purpose led business, that's the moment when you know whether you're purpose led or not. Okay, I'm I'm like more and more questions are coming up as you're speaking. <laughs> I'll t I'll tell I'll tell you one more. Just you know, I think another one that's that's sort of really, um, and I hear people using the language of this a lot. We talk with act with an intention of transparency. Would you be happy for your clients, colleagues, friends, and family to know about this action or decision? And so it's intention with because sometimes it's not appropriate to be. We're not fully transparent. So, for example, we don't share salaries internally because staff chose not to. We don't share everyone's reviews. internally. You know, there's a very few things, but our default is transparency. So it's quite hard to make something private at Wesaviri. And I think that's good. And then sometimes it's just appropriate not to be radically transparent. But if you ask yourself, would I be happy if my people I loved, my clients knew about this decision. And if you're not, and you ask your colleagues and we're not, then we shouldn't do it. So 
that's a really important mm -hmm. kind of way of operating. I love these. Okay, I I need one move on to the other area, but before we do, I just have to ask a little a few more questions about these, which is around. You know, you've talked a few times about the fact that you've built these things collaboratively, but together that you obviously have a process of figuring out together. Oh, okay, we want we think we we see a need for maybe a, another one to be added. So one's going to have to go. So tell me how this relates to the kind of the decision making process that you talked about before. Like, whose domain is it? <laughs> Who gets to, ah, you know, where do these um when you're deciding around rules, these simple cross cutting rules? How does that fit into the decision making piece? Great. So you've domains, which are, uh, yeah, domains are the most fundamental part. So maybe actually I should have said we've got simple rules, domains, which is like, what's the place you're playing on the pitch? Precedence and then um, a sort of culture about decision making. So domains are really, really important. And um, everything fits in a domain. And sometimes that's the question. You know, whenever we hit something, we don't know what to do. The question is, whose domain is this? Sometimes you create a new one for it so right organizing the retreat whose domain is this um some things are very static and are there forever and some things domains come and go but it's such an important principle and this is also a bit counterintuitive i think sometimes um i have a total allergy to joint ownership i think it's a problem um so we try and always have a single point of ownership okay okay and just for anyone who's not familiar with kind of the the language of domains this is like an, an area of your, you have the responsibility, the accountability, how would you describe it? Yeah, you have the decision-making authority. And for some who are, you know, we've taken this language from holacracy, but it's not, theirs was a bit heavy. It's too procedural, like it was too much. So we use a sort of simplified version of theirs, but yeah, it simply means your area of decision-making authority. But the key distinction here is like, if it's your area, you have a responsibility to ask advice from people who you might be impacted by your decisions, but it is advice, not direction or instruction. Even if it comes from someone who, you know, maybe in a more senior position than you in the organization. And so once you've got that principle, you know, meetings aren't decision-making. These are a paradox sometimes. We have meetings where you, Hannah, you might come along and say, oh, in my domain, I've, I've, I'm wondering about, I don't know, I'm wondering about the location for our retreat. And I've been looking at a few different things. What do people think? And someone says, oh, we should definitely go to the coast in Kenya. And someone else says, no, no, it'd be much better if we're in the UK. And someone says it should be online. And we all kind of make our case. And you say, OK, thank you. I'll go away and I'll make a decision. And then we move on to the next thing. And it's not a collective decision. It's not a collaborative decision. We've put our input in and you own the decision and off you go and, and you make it. And for me, that speeds up a lot of our it, it frees up decisions discussion as well because suddenly we're like we don't need to hear four people making the case for the coast we need to hear who's got a different view and we don't have to get to consensus it really breaks the group think piece it breaks the most senior person making the call and in fact sometimes the best thing is not even to we don't even ask that person to come back and report what they've decided sometimes it becomes apparent because hey we're, we're all <laughs> off to Mombasa um <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't, but again, it's not a report. If they need further decision, whatever, it often becomes apparent, but there's not a requirement to come back and justify yeah. that decision. Okay, so with the the seven, the simple rules, how does it apply? So the simple rules, I'm just looking at them now, are the domain owner is the managing director. So, you know, you just decide who a domain owner is. Sometimes they're obvious, sometimes they're a bit less obvious, but the domain owner is there. 
And their job is actually, you know, the process of doing those. So we tend to review them once a year. I, actually, they tend to last a bit longer than that. It's only every three or four years they seem to be a bit overhauled. And again, a good decision, you know, the simple rules are cultural rules and therefore the process is most important. A good decision about the simple rules is not an efficient one. It's an inclusive mm -hmm. one. So that's what a good decision on the simple rules looks like. So um, at the last retreat, actually, we kind of got them all out and looked at them all and everyone put in some opinions. And then actually a small group went away and worked up an next version. And we had a few iterations of that. Um, so the, the, the managing director owns the domain and is responsible for kind of making sure that process happens. But a good decision around these is, is a very inclusive one. And just quickly on that one, does that imply then that how you have decided you've defined what a good decision is, is different for different areas, that inclusive might be a bigger emphasis in one type of decision, whereas quick might be a more important emphasis in another? Is that right? Yes. So I can tell you that the first year we had these simple, I've been reading lots of books and everything and and um, I came, I realised this is what we needed. So I sat down and was very clever and came up with like five I called them golden rules then and I brought them to the retreat and said here you go people what do you think and everyone went oh yeah no 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 they're, they're great and I was like no no tell me what you think it's just a straw dog you know what can we do better what do you need changing everyone's like no 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 that's fine they're good Kate and we went away and nothing happened <laughs> and they had no salience in the organization no grip and it wasn't because people didn't feel comfortable or able it was just because they had no meaning because they hadn't been generated <laughs> you know they hadn't come from us so the next year I came back and said, OK, that clearly didn't work. Let's have another go. And we generated them together. And that's because that, yes, a good decision there is, a, is an inclusive one. But if you're deciding, I don't know, if you're deciding on the pricing of a bid, then the good decision there is like some robust financial analysis. If you're deciding on, I don't know, something, often some bit lower consequence, an efficient decision with only two people in it is the, is the best one. So again, we shouldn't think that what makes good decision is always the same but i would say generally things that are cultural do need more inclusiveness um so yes the whole you can go fast alone or you can go slow with people there's a the inclusivity when you need people to actually live the thing that you're you're doing if they're not involved then um it's unlikely to stick as you say yeah and sometimes you don't need everyone to come with you and it's better to go fast alone. You, you, there's a space for some very efficient, you, you know, authoritative, as in one person says, this is what we're doing now, decision making. There's some good place for that. And most people are like, oh, thank goodness someone made a choice about that and cracked on. So um, there you go. So, yes, those are our, 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 our simple rules. Um, you, we don't have a rule for things that are so blindingly obvious, like treat each other with respect. I mean, if you have to have a rule for that, you're probably in trouble, aren't you? You have a rule for the decision-making points. Should we do this or should we do this? You know, the points of tension are where you need a rule that say, this is the thing we value more in this point. So sometimes we get rid of a rule because it's become so baked in now. It's like, well, we don't need to say it anymore. The rules should exist for the things that we make decisions and choices around. Wonderful. So um, precedence. So I love this kind of, um, you know, it's about laying out what, how we feel about things. You can, uh, it means you don't have to have conversations about things. You can just get on, refer to that, get your answer, crack on. Um, 
and you say, okay, have, have as few as possible. So again, I would love like wisdom for setting these and like challenges for setting these, you know, oh, like you said, oh, if we said a thing around how we, how we cost things and you go, oh, presumably you might, someone might have a scenario and we need to change that. Um, yeah. Tell me more about how the precedents work. Okay. <laughs> I mean, stuff we're not getting right all the time. So I like to think about it, it. Go back to my metaphor about a football game. These are the things that if you don't follow them, the referee's going to blow the whistle and you might get sent off or you might get a yellow card. It's like, whoa, wait a moment. We're going to stop play and say, what's going on here? So they're not, they're not guidance. They're not like best practice or they're just not, they're not tactical advice. Oh, it's better if we play a, I don't know, three, four lineup, or it's better if, you know, whatever, we track the ball. Yeah, it's more basic. It's more fundamental. Is the referee going to blow the whistle and say, wait a moment, that's a problem. So I would say if it, you know, to try and keep a reasonably high bar for what a precedent is. It's a really strong expectation that you are going to follow this. And if for any reason you're not, then you have to have a conversation with the person who wrote it because they it's in their domain. You cannot break a precedent on your own. You know, again, go back to the football pitch. The goalkeeper stays in the goal. Sometimes they run out and you know come out. That's so therefore they can leave the goal. There's not a precedent that says you must stay in the box. That's just what they generally do. They make that decision autonomously in the moment because it's the right thing to do. So the referee's not going to blow the whistle. So I, you know, that's my metaphor. Is this something that the referee is going to blow the whistle for? Um, and that's to try and keep as few of them as possible. So they should be absolutely like, they're not guided, you know, not advice. <laughs> they're, they're, set, you know, they're, they're what are they? Maybe call them policies in other organisations, mm. but they're pretty strongly held. Yeah. So that's one thing. Um, and the moment you have that, then you have to write them in that way. It sort of makes a lot of stuff sieve out. You can't say, well, do this or this. <laughs> that's not yeah. a precedent. It's only a precedent if you're like, do this. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, okay. And we have other places to keep like learnings and softer stuff that we've learned. Oh, um, you know, I don't know, you might say it's a good I idea to have a kickoff meeting with a with a client before you start a piece of work. Well, that is good at, uh, advice, but it, it's not a precedent because we don't always do it. And we're not going to send you off, you know, blow the whistle and have a go. What were you doing, Hannah, if you don't do it? So, yeah, set the bar really high for precedents and they have to be essential. Um, you have to write them down, which does force a degree of codification, mm -hmm. that forces someone to say, yeah, this is what I'm trying to say. Um, and they have to be owned by someone, yeah. which is the person whose domain they sit within. Um, and so the fact that someone owns them, you know, I'm thinking also about the process of developing them. Someone might go, oh, OK, look, I think, you know, I think we actually there's a precedent around X. We're always doing this. Yeah. It's helpful just to have this here. Um, so I'm going to volunteer myself to take ownership of this and write this up. Is that kind of broadly speaking how it works? Is there like then a process of I have to get some advice on that before I can then put it in? Like how does how does that all, all roll? Yeah, well, this is probably one of the things I think we haven't got quite right yet because I, I think they are prolificating a bit. Um, but that's basically how it works, that someone decides, you know, and we say you don't have a precedent for everything. If there's something only you do or only happens very occasionally, don't write a precedent for it. The only they're for things where other people are going to do this thing yeah. and we need them to do it in a certain certain way so 
yeah there's that but yeah basically it happens like you say people decide oh i'm going to write one but that's probably got us a bit of a prof prolification okay problem. yeah and if they write one and someone goes oh no i disagree i think we, we need to do it this way instead um what happens there well it would come back to who owns it who's the domain owner and so yeah if, if i look at something and say wait a moment i call up the domain owner or I write to them and say that seems a bit off and they might go oh yeah you're right and they change it but they own the decision or they might say no kate we're going to do it like this from now on so again in that interaction it's really clear who the decision yeah. maker is yeah and Perfect. who's the domain owner so this is bringing me to an area that feels like a massive one for us to touch on, which was you touched on, okay, one of the big kind of elements to making this work is leadership power. And I just, yeah, I feel like I kind of just want to give you the floor to tell us more about that because I have 101 questions around that. So just tell, tell me more about what you've learned, how important this is, what, yeah, what do you think needs to be said about the role of leadership and the holding of power in, in making this work well? Um, gosh, that is probably a, a whole podcast in itself, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's really easy to say. Well, I'll start with the, my favourite hobby or one of them is this idea of empowerment. You know, empowerment is an oxymoron. You can't do empowerment to somebody else. You can't say, I've done all these things, now you're empowered. So if you're looking at running an organisation like this and you want more distributed decision making and you want people to make make decisions, then you have to go, well, as a, you know, as a leader, you're going, OK, well, what what makes it difficult to do that? And some of it is structural things like, oh, are people do people feel clear? You know, people people feel like, well, am I safe to do that? Hmm. Am I safe to do that? Do I know how to do that? And the safe bit is really important because it's like particularly if you've grown up and all of us have in different organizations which tell you kind of decision making is aggregated up it's like okay does these people really mean it um, yeah what's mm -hmm. going to happen if I make a decision that you know say Kate she's the MD doesn't like I was the MD at the time just to be clear mm -hmm. Alex is now the MD um and so you've got to create the conditions where people really trust that they have the support and the backing and the the, the knowledge to make decisions. So some of it is things like precedence, making it really clear what, what you're going to judge a good decision by and what you're not. Yeah. And then you've got to, you know, ultimately as a leader, what you can do is put down some of your own power and see if anyone wants to pick it up. But the real leadership act is putting down some of your own power. And so as a leader, that's quite hard because it's, or, or what that looks like is, am I ready to be out of control of things? Am I ready not to know things that are happening? You know, it feels very reassuring to know things in my organisation. So being asked to say, oh, you make the decision, but copy me in. I would really challenge that. <laughs> you know, if you're saying you make the decision, then why do I need to be copied in? So there's something about as a leader being, being unsighted on things, uh, about being willing to watch decisions be made that you're like, ooh, maybe that's not the decision I would have made. And sometimes that's, that people are making better decisions because they're be go back to that big surface area they're better connected with their context and their world and their information um so i think as a if you want to lead this sort of change you have to really think about how am i going what bits of my power am i going to seed and how do i seed them and how do i demonstrate relentlessly day to day that i've seeded them and the fun thing i found 
is that once you've really seeded them and once other people have really picked it up, you actually can't get it back. <laughs> because people are like grown into it and they're like, no, that's my power now. Um, and that's both quite exciting because it does mean this stuff feels stickier beyond one person choosing to lead like this. Um, so, yeah, so so there's some... I think I think that's a very personal practice. And, you know, it's sometimes a bit hard if you're you've grown up through, you know, if you've become a senior person, you've kind of used to a bit. Of, there's a bit of loss of status, you know, and that can be hard when we're interacting with an outside world that's used to seeing people or people are in our organization trying to build their career profiles. And you yes. Know, yeah. Build, yeah. And then because like, you know, they get on their own career journeys and they can find they've got a bit less status than and how to help the outside world see them as having the status that is a currency that they need. Yeah. Um, so I think I'd be saying if you're going to lead this sort of stuff, you have to be really thoughtful about your own power and how you wield it. And no amount of just telling people that they've got power, unless you're really willing to demonstrate that, that you have less power. Um, and I will have got some of that very wrong at times, I'm sure colleagues will have but that that's the work I think Def, I mean wow definitely I mean that is that you know hearing you talk about it and and also thinking about some of the other organizations that I've kind of been privileged to be alongside as they navigate some of this some of this oh this is an idea and now I'm having to actually like you say put down some power and how I figure out that and also how you prepare people to to take on more power because I think there can be a sort of assumption around this idea of kind of self-organizing and self-managing. Oh, well, we'll just we'll just open up the, the doors, let people do what they want, you know, done. They'll just take to it like fish in water and there'll be no problems. And I think, you know, one thing that you've already made clear through the descriptions of kind of how things work is that like, like actually no, like structure rules, really important. Like, I'd, I'd love to know like how you've helped people get comfortable with kind of taking on more power or operating in this different way. Because as you say, it's totally not the norm of most of us in our upbringing and so on. And what's been hard in like the, the re-navigating of power? Yeah. So what's been hard is it's taken loads longer than I ever thought it would. Like in my naivety, I thought, open the doors, tell everyone they're in and off we go. And it doesn't work like that. And so what it takes is like relentless demonstration that you mean it day to day in all the little things. And I think for me in my leadership, you know, the priority, the thing I was most focused on is how do I create the water of this organization? And and sometimes that meant watching decisions be made that I'd have made different ones or wanted to be part of, but I wasn't like and totally been so committed to that process that. I saw that as my practice, like every day in the little things. So I think, I think you have to, yeah, it, it is not a, you know, because what you're doing is changing people's lived experience of being in an organization. Mm. And, and so how do you lead that and how do you demonstrate that all the time? And then I think the other thing that's really interesting is, is, you know, the diversity dimension on this as well, because, you know, if you ask, well, what makes people cautious about picking up a bit more power? 
And it's usually about the experiences they've had of power or whether they're taken seriously or not. Or, you know, it's, it's not an innate thing at all. It's like a lived experience thing. It's the water that everyone's swimming. And I think, you know, there's a there's a gender dimension to that. There's a race dimension to that. Um, you know, people and, and I think you have you know, exploring that um, has been sort of part of the journey as well. You know, I've read a lot on the kind of anti-racist perspective, which I think is really helpful because that actually takes quite a structural approach um, so that not all people come to this because of their lived experience. Not all people come to this way of working in the same way. They all people all come with the same sort of capacity for it. And I would say some of the people I've seen in our organization embrace this most are possibly people who've had less experiences of power in their other other lives and other lived lives. Like people are very capable. Um, but the reasons people might go, really? Is this gonna really pan out when I make decisions like this? Am I really gonna be back? Um, is that really gonna be okay? Is is of you know, is not a level playing field. So I think there's a really interesting diversity uh, uh, perspective that needs bringing to this work as well. Vital. I, I guess when you're in a majority group, you're pop, and particularly when you, as you get a bit older and a bit more senior, like I am, you, your experiences and comfort with wielding power is greater, and and that becomes very, you know, you don't notice when you're doing it, but that's the prob, that's the problem with it. Yeah. And you wield power unconsciously a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, I think that's just such an important message because, yeah, totally witnessed that quite happen quite a lot of uh, this assumption that people will just step in. You're, I'll create a void and people will just fill it. And uh, that lack of ability to kind of recognise that actually people are arriving from totally different places and someone might absolutely leap into that space and be like, yep, and someone else will really need to be asked 10 times before they will step into that space and recognizing that you're dealing with a group of individuals, like you say, with different pasts, different experiences, which will mean that their willingness, their readiness to kind of step into a, uh, an invitation to power is going to be really different. And the work is really on yourself as well, because, um, you know, the more comfortable you are, the longer you've held power and that's, you know, institutional power maybe through being senior but also kind of power that comes through um kind of race and gender and ability or what you know um whatever the sources of your power are the more comfortable you are wielding them the more you kind of tend to wield them a little bit unconsciously and the more the more comfortable you are picking up somebody else's so the invitation is really easy for you for one when you we're kind of used to that and so again this sort of like I'll step back and create a space and, and people will step in. Well, you may well find that the same people step in that have always yes. stepped in. Yes. Um, so again, if you, if you want to create that, that with, you know, a more participatory, more diverse kind of holders of power, then, then I think, think being intent, recognizing that that's not a level playing field that people are coming into um, it, is also important in this work. Right. I have, I'm going to limit myself to two more questions, I think. So one question is, you know, like you say, there's, there's a lot of work here, right? There's a lot of intention. There's a lot of attention. And so first question, is it worth it? Is it worth doing it? Is it worth this work? Um, well, I, I very much think it is because, um, 
you know, most organizations don't talk about their operating system. They don't talk about any of this stuff. And so um, all you're doing here is bringing light into stuff that's sort of autom- you know, just sort of happening anyway. Um, but one of the things we've really got is an ability to talk about how we're organizing ourselves. And that gives us an adaptability because when you've got a language in an organization, you can, to talk about it, you can do it differently. And, you know, practically the, the big trade-offs I've seen is that one, we spend a lot less time managing ourselves than most organizations I know that have a comparable site. Go back to the big um, surface surface layer with the outside world. We spend most of our time on the outside world. So this podcast has all been about this stuff, but we don't spend very loads and loads of time talking about this stuff. And that's, again, the help. Once you've got your, your few bits of structure in, so for us, domains and um, precedent, you know, what I see happen is something new pops up in the organization and the question gets asked, oh, whose domain is this? And then we just crack crack on once that is answered. So I would say the big trade-offs are we spend a lot less time meeting each other, talking to each other, managing our organization than I think comparable organizations. And that can feel a bit uncomfortable. It's like an elastic, you're always stretching, but I think it's really worth it. And then the second thing is I've seen us manage to respond to situations because of this. And I can give you two examples, if you like, both from the pandemic, um, which is because we've got this big surface layer with the outside world and because we've got people who are so used to making decisions, things happen. So just to give you an example, we do a lot of work, a lot of our work on violent extremism and, and understanding people's path to you know, what makes some people get. Um, more vulnerable to radicalization there's a lot of community-based research so this is people out in at-risk communities mostly um in in kenya tanzania uganda so this is real kind of face-to-face research you know in, in vulnerable communities and so the pandemic was a you know really tough time because suddenly traveling around meeting people face to face working with vulnerable people there's huge security issues there's the complexity of working through those times and you know we work in east africa uh kenya was um very on it with kind of data and they were very quick to things like lockdowns and you know tanzania maintained there was no covid throughout the period so you had incredible regional diversity there and i only found out you know, sort of somewhere through that process that we were one of the very, very few organizations that maintained an ability to do field based work through that period. And when I asked some of my colleagues, I was like, how are we able to do that when everybody else, most other people were through? They said it was because they were making decisions week by week and the people doing the work were making the decisions. It wasn't being made centrally back in me sitting in my late district bedroom, Mm -hmm. spare room. Uh, they will be made so they could say, oh, well, this week that community, you know, there's been a little spike in numbers there. So we won't go there, but we'll wait till next week. And then, so people doing the work felt a lot of control and yeah. safety because they could say, oh, there were really subtle things like, um, you know, in, in Tanzania, the politics around because they were saying there was no, um, you know, no, no covid the politics around mask wearing could make people quite vulnerable so there were little choices there oh, we'll buy black masks they're a little bit more subtle than you know and these decisions were made all the time by people who were doing the work and they were adapting and it wasn't that they didn't want to tell me or will or will ask for permission of forgiveness not permission it was just that they were so used to making decisions and felt that the control to do that um that i think we were able to keep working in that way and and one of the things i'm proudest of in through that period was that we actually provided a lot of vaccination to people that wanted it 
not just our staff but the people we work with and consultants and you know and the team out there made all those decisions to to spend money on that to facilitate that to spend time it wasn't a centrally made decision it was a locally made decision and those moments don't it's not like a decision do we do this vaccination or not and who's in or out it was just like month by month week by week who 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 do we want to embrace who are we holding who take accountability for you know and and the ability to do that and people to spend money that was company money because they you know take care of our financial health yeah the right choice we have some spending matrix they made all these decisions you know and and so in moments like that you go this is totally worth it mm. it's worth it from a doing the right thing perspective and it's a worth it from the business functioning perspective there's a couple of examples amazing amazing well I mean like such an incredible example of that agility that responsiveness that dynamism really living and reacting with this external world that's that's always shifting and moving and you're able to shift and move with it and like you say to kind of be grounded in a set of rules principles precepts whatever people don't want to call them but then that's like this empowering boundary in a way it's like an empowering grounding you've got that and then you can often move and make decisions and really respond that just yeah what an amazing example yeah so yeah so there's and there's other more micro everyday uh, but so examples but for me it feels very much worth it because we're able to work in the world that we're in yeah it's not totally easy and making decisions is hard and and you know you make decisions because things are ambiguous if, if things are clear cut and there's no decision to make so that feels hard and sometimes it it can feel more comfortable to be very collective about things, but you lose the speed yeah. with that. Yeah. You use. yeah. So I wouldn't say it's easier. It's just different. And for me, it's, and for the people in West Sapiri, it's also a more joyful way to work. It doesn't work for everyone. And some people do go, oh, this doesn't quite work for me. Yeah. <laughs> so again, I wouldn't say it's like a universal answer to everything, but Ooh. it enables us to do the work and in, that we need to do in the world and to do it in a way that we find joyful and growthful and yeah meaningful yeah well that links so much to what you said at the beginning right about knowing your work and your team that this is this is a method that works for the work that you're trying to do and for the people that you're working with and alongside that that's this is something that that suits you and it may not for different structures who are trying to do different things with different people it may be something different yeah, absolutely. And it can have many different forms. We shouldn't think there's only one form to this or some sort of purist form. Exactly. <laughs> there's people out there who go much further down this road than we've gone of self-management. Mm-hmm. And there's people who look at what we do and go, wow, that seems seems a bit, bit you know, a bit unconventional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's so many different ways of doing this. Um, so I said I had one more question, but I lied. I'm going to squeeze in one more if if you have the space. Oh yeah, I've got the space. Okay, thank you. <laughs> my favorite stuff. This is my favorite stuff to talk about. I don't know who else wants to listen to me <laughs> go on at this length about it. Oh uh, no, I'm I'm confident that this is um yeah that there'll be plenty of people who are keen to hear what you've got to say. Um, so the extra question I'm going to squeeze in is kind of I suppose riffing a little bit on our discussions around structure and around power is, you know, I think, again, one of the sort of myths or the perceptions that often comes around this idea of self-organizing, self-managing, adaptive, is, okay, well, it'll be completely flat. You know, there'll be no hierarchies. Mm. And in my 
experience and understanding is that there's a hierarchy in every relationship and you know different kinds maybe it's age maybe it's experience maybe it's knowledge of a particular thing hierarchies aren't something that you can remove so I wonder how that's my you might feel differently that's my kind of orientation to it so I wondered how hierarchy you know how that relates to what you've what your experience and what you've created yeah well I would agree with you I think hierarchy well, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about all of humankind, but uh, I think hierarchy does exist in organisations, and it certainly exists in our organisation. And I think it's actually quite dangerous when organisations say that they're really flat, because what you end up with is a sort of, um, unless they truly are and they really work to that kind of collective um, approach, what you end up with is a sort of um, informal and sort of shadow hierarchy rather than an explicit and open one and I think that's something to be wary of so the way that we I would say yes we have hierarchy you know some of us are shareholders and own the business some of us earn more than others uh some of us have domains that probably um you know what you might say more strategic you know they have bigger spheres of influence yeah. so there, there is definitely hierarchy in our organization um, and I think for me, it's about being as open and explicit about that as you can. I then say what we're trying to have is oh, as little, you know, it's not an assumption of hierarchy. It's as little hierarchy as possible. <laughs> Some is necessary. So it's again, this it's it's this process of going, well, um, you know, what hierarchy have we got? And then sometimes, you know, if you're a domain owner, you're you're the top of the tree in that space. Mm-hmm. So and that's that's probably the hardest bit because we're so used to, you know, if I'm more senior in one space, then I can override decisions by anyone mm-hmm. in other spaces. Mm-hmm. So trying to hold you know, who is who's who's the kind of hierarchically in this space and this decision domain in this area, you know, on this project. Mm-hmm. You know, I work on some projects where I'm like in charge of the project and then I work to other people where I'm like, you know, not and, and trying to help people hold that so so that the hierarchy can be different different people yeah um but yeah it would be naive and a bit of it would be it would be to say there's no hierarchy would be an abuse of power basically mm-hmm. convenient for people like me who hold quite a bit <laughs> to pretend that um so I think it's about trying to be really open about that but realizing that hierarchy is contextual yeah so, you know, it, it, for example, in those decisions, you know, I'm not based in Kenya. I'm not doing the, the field based work. I don't understand that context nearly as well as most of my colleague, colleagues who do that work. So in that position, they they are high, they are in charge of that. And I'm not because who am I to make this? I'm not, you know, that surface level with the world, you know, out of, with that um, yeah. surface layer with the outside world. I'm not there. <laughs> So in those situations, they are in charge and they know that and they make decisions all the time, which sometimes I find out about later mm-hmm. because I'm not very relevant to some of those decisions. Um, and then there's other areas where I, I am. So, yeah. Have I answered your question about how? Totally, totally. Yeah, I think I think what I'm hearing from you is, you know, if we think of hierarchies, essentially it's about power um and that you know power is always present in you know and it's about as you say kind of being explicit being open about where it is that power can take loads of different forms it can just be oh I'm 
I'm newer, I'm older in this form. It can be, I know more about this particular context than you in this one. And being able to have something that allows that to be visible. Because I think where I've seen this kind of go a bit wrong is when organizations have said, oh, there's no hierarchy here. We're completely flat. Everyone has exactly the same, but actually everyone's lived experiences that that's not true. Everyone's lived experiences. Oh, but I really know that the decision-making power ultimately sits with so-and-so. And I really know that I couldn't possibly make this call without involving this person. So there's all of this actual hierarchy in place that some people know about, but it's not made explicit. You can't actually look at it, touch it, name it, challenge it, talk about it, because it's not there in the open for everyone to kind of work with and I think that's the that's the danger in that you know the kind of standard hierarchy pyramids that we're used to are really unhelpful in the senses that we've explored today they're not very agile it means that people who don't necessarily know anything about a particular context get to make a decision about it um it's you know can be really unhelpful in that sense but kind of just pretending that there is no difference in power in experience in knowledge between a whole host of people and not kind of giving a means for people to engage with that can lead to a whole host of abuses of power yeah and maybe in this all this progressive stuff that's probably the biggest thing you need to be attentive to I think um and maybe a very practical thing because you know I'm interested you know from my own experience as a lead you know as leading this stuff and and stuff someone who holds power um you know how how do you manage that so you can manage it conceptually and you can think about ah oh, my behaviors and all the rest of it but one of the things i found really helpful and i took this from um the burke's dog story mm. is um if you get too busy with other stuff you just can't meddle as much <laughs> so in the, in the burke's dog which i'm sure people are have i pronounced it right i'm always never sure of that right yeah well if, if people haven't heard of it i'll put a link in the in the show notes to this um nursing organization so one of the things they do there is you know, people work in these self these teams of 12 self-managed teams and they they then found people sometimes get stuck and they needed um a bit of you know someone else you could pull in to say hey help us do this so they created an idea of workplace coaches but then they found that those coaches um sort of started to de facto work like regional managers and they would come in and help people problem solve and then they'd follow up and do accountability and they sort of everyone started defaulting to them to be workforce managers uh, regional managers so they found the best way was to make those coaches cover i think they cover 50 teams with the <laughs> idea that they have far too many teams that they're acting as coaches for to possibly sort of default to being regional regional managers and i've really taken that principle so when i said right at the beginning that one of the things is we spend less time talking to each other you know as manager director i was also doing you know, delivery and some direct client you know lots of direct client work and all the rest of it I don't possibly have time to get into everyone else's business and so you have I think you know it's a practical way it's like what a, you know, if you've got a lot of time on your hands you start getting and too involved and yes you need the structures as well yes people need to feel like you're not suddenly going to parachute over the top of them and go what I didn't know about that but there's something really helpful about saying I don't have I'm I have only a a particular amount of time to get to to do my leadership in this organization where am I where am I spending that you know I think if you find yourself saying oh I'll just join that meeting or join that decision all the time then you're probably you have to be really careful about why and what the driver is to do that so at a practical level I think there can be something about making sure you're just a little bit too busy to get involved in everything because that's yeah 
that's what people need some space yeah yeah well it feels like a kind of shortcut to trust it's like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's like oh there's a little kind of niggle in me that I'm still working on that that kind of is wants to know and you're like oh until I'm really comfortable with it I'm just gonna make sure that I kind of practically limit my ability to to meddle <laughs> Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> I work, I've done all sorts of interesting work with the British Army, which bizarrely, in some respects, are really kind of um, maybe bizarrely, you know, our, our uh, stereotype of them would be, and they are very hierarchical, but there's moments when they they have some quite radical views. And one of them, they talk about delegate till it hurts. And I think delegation is not what we're talking about. It's not about delegating tasks, but there is something about till it hurts that mm, can be helpful. Yeah, like push yourself senior position like really it comes back to your own inner work of like questioning what what is it that why am I getting involved in this what is it I'm really looking for am I looking for control or reassurance what's really driving this um and sometimes that's really legitimate you're like oh yeah this feels like it's really consequential and I'm I think I've got more you know really significant insight that needs to come to this and then it's totally legitimate and sometimes it's just because I'm like oh <laughs> maybe I don't need so till it yeah. hurts maybe oh yeah that connection to the inner work I feel like that's um it's an unavoidable part of all of this isn't it um what we're <laughs> what we're creating externally is only a reflection of what we're we're working with internally so yeah I think I set off on this journey hoping it was avoidable but it turned out that uh you know I was part of part of the solution and part of the problem as well so there was some inner work <laughs> yeah yeah it's a it's a painful realization isn't it uh, those moments um so I am going to turn to a final question now which is just so for the people who are listening who maybe maybe they're part of an, an organization that's kind of looking to sort of play with introducing some more of this experiment with some of this or maybe they're setting something up and they're wanting to kind of bring this in from the beginning you mentioned a minute ago that it's like mm, okay I think being attentive to hierarchy power distribution is maybe one of the things to keep in your mind or to try and hold front of mind as you're working in this playing with this stuff what else would you say is kind of Key things, key post-it notes to to shove on your on your screen, to put on your mirror. What are the big things people should be trying to hold on to as they're dabbling? Uh, you know, I would actually say get really practical. Mm. This stuff can be very, you know, particularly people like me can have a lovely time thinking about these big ideas and <laughs> pontificating about it. And I think this stuff is really about people are lived experience, day-to-day experience. Um and I think the places that are actually most exciting to go with this and most liberating and get the biggest return is when you go after the practical stuff. Right. How are we? I don't know. Oh, we have a team meeting. OK, what are we actually talking about in that? What do we want to talk about? What would make you? Know, how does this team meeting line up with how we do our work? Is it, and, and even if you just want to experiment with it, you can experiment with those sites that already exist in your organisation. And say, well, okay, what would a team meeting look like that's more about people going away and making decisions rather than trying to make collective decisions and yeah. and and experiment with those? So I'd say that. And then I, I would say that I think I think if you're gonna do it, you probably do also need the narrative that says why. Why are we doing it? Because it will feel a bit hard, because it'll yeah. it'll just feel a bit different. So you do need that bigger story together. 
um you know and it can be quite simple saying hey you know wouldn't it be great if we could you know everyone wants to cut down to bureaucracy don't they or wouldn't it be great if we could make decisions a bit quicker so let's try making less collective decisions and more you know or more people making decisions okay what does that look like let's choose two or three things we want to move a bit quicker around rather than sort of everything needs to be quicker let's say well, yeah. what are the two or three things that need to would be great if they're a bit quicker right let's let's tackle those so i think you can get really experimental with that and then the st- the post-it note ah, i'm going to contradict myself because there's something about you have to do this explicitly and openly with people mm. i think i think that's why i learned the first goes you know i did lots of thinking clever thinking and brought it out and everyone went oh that's nice and they went it wasn't like a resistance it was just like a it's like all in your head kate it's mm-hmm. not in ours. Mm-hmm. so i think there is something about an organization learning people people learning to have conversations together about how we organize ourselves and feeling like it's an experiment we're doing together rather than being done to you know by the nature of this it can't be a done to it can't be an implicit thing i'm going to try leading in a different way and i'm not going to tell you all it's like <laughs> hey everyone here's what i'm thinking here's what we're going to, will you try it with me how do, what do you think what's worked what's not worked you know yeah so Maybe the post-it note is it's a it's a together thing. Wasafiri. We're, you know, traveler, there is no path, we make the path by walking. That's and achado machado. We should put the we we'll put the credit in the in the in the um Machado. Um Antonio Machado. Yeah, we make the path by walking together. We are creating this together in our organization. There you go. Is that that's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and so helpful um, as a set of things to kind of grab hold of, because, you know, as, as we said at the beginning, the, the kind of dominant structures that we experience, even within our own families, our schools, every institution, organisation that we might ever have been part of, there's like ways of doing this that have become so embedded that we don't even really recognise them as like a model for decision making and organising. It's just like you say, we just, that's just taken for granted so doing like thinking about doing this differently I think can feel really big and can bring up a lot of internal scariness like I'm going to give this away and something's going to go wrong and it's all going to break and it's all going to come crumbling down and I'm going to be laughed at I'm not going to have any status I, I think it can trigger a lot of a lot of quite deep internal stuff and so things will go wrong and it'll be my fault and I didn't know yeah exactly um but I think these kind of these handrails you've offered us these little signals of not only where to start but also some of the key things that you've shared around you know how you've navigated this in a really practical way in a way that doesn't feel kind of scary and terrifying there's some really really straightforward things that people can can get hold of and start to practice with just feels like a really brilliant helpful way in yeah, I, I do think if some of my colleagues were on, they would say, oh, it has felt a bit weird at times. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think generally, you know, we just had a retreat for the first time in a couple of years mm-hmm. all together with COVID. And it felt like a real shared journey. Like this is a way that we are together. It's not a, it's not something that Kate has been, you know, has, is telling it, 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 it's not Kate's world, it's our world. And it felt, you could feel that. Um, and it's totally imperfect and there's lots more to do. And, you know, 
all the rest of it, but it it does feel like an organization we you know we're, we're in together and yeah, a way of being together. <laughs> Well, I just have to say a huge thank you for not only for this, for this huge sharing of um, a very generous sharing of experience, of knowledge, of practice, but also for for doing it in the first place. A huge thank you for for kind of taking that initiative to say, "Mm, okay, I think we could try something different here. I think actually this work needs something different and doing, spending the time, putting the energy and figuring out what might work. So just, yeah, a huge thank you for the people who I think, like you say, we're building the path together. But it's 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 really helpful, I think, also to kind of witness some others who have taken some different steps or are working on different parts of that path so that we are kind of moving forward to together. So, yeah, just a, a thanks for the for the path making you've been doing. Oh, well, it's a it's a real pleasure. And it's lovely to talk to you about it. Not, not that many people are as interested. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> it's so it's useful. And I'm always happy to share anything that we've done that's useful. And I'm always super keen. And I do. I I steal graciously from other people and little ideas and so yeah you know anybody's got anything I'd really value learning from them as well well I will absolutely be um be sharing Kate's details in the notes so if you want to (laughs) pepper her with even more questions than I managed to squeeze in today then um yeah there you are there you are you've got an an invitation (laughs) uh yeah I'm always over on LinkedIn and on our uh mighty networks we can put a link to a link to that as well so um, great always happy to chat about these things amazing thank you so 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 much kate thank you my goodness what a treasure trove that was i don't know about you but i feel like i took away so much to think about and also to do I think that conversation has come at a really important moment for me and for Tealco as well, because we're actually in a process now of developing some principles for the organisation which are going to act in a similar way to the simple rules that Kate described. And I'm also kind of in a place of really acknowledging and recognising my role as a leader in this organisation and the importance of being a strong leader in an organisation that is definitely seeking to implement more adaptive, self-managed practices. And so the need to be a strong leader, but in a very different way in which we might normally have thought about that, needing to be really, really attentive to the ways in which I wield and yield power as a leader in the organisation that I have founded. So it's raised some really great food for thought and a lot of amazing practices that we can experiment with in our organization too. It's a lovely sunny evening here in Kent where I am so I'm gonna go for a walk along the beach now and uh, digest this a little more. I hope wherever you are you're having a wonderful morning, afternoon or evening. Until next time, see you then.